healing of the heart, where some of us encounter bad experiences, particularly in a church context, that wind up spilling over to becoming a negative impact on our relationship with God and our perception of him, and also our relationship with his, his people, the church, and our perception of church. In fact, some people, the word church could trigger negative emotions like that. Uh, and that's a real thing. And so we just want to talk about uh, some things. I told some guys earlier this morning that I feel I'm in fear and trembling as I share this because I know it's a very real thing and, and, um, and it's not a simple thing. It's not just like a thing that we can just toss out. Uh, it's, it's deep and it's sometimes complicated, but what I want to share is what I believe pertains to all of us. So whether or not you feel you have need of spiritual healing, all of us on some level probably need a greater clarity about the person, the identity of God. And all of us could usually have some kind of residue of something or something like that uh, where God might want to bring healing. So can we ask him for that in the, in the power of his name? Lord, we do thank you that we are your sheep and you are our shepherd and you desire to lead us into good things and you care deeply about every single individual in this room and you know everyone by name you know each of us by name you know each of the things that are in our hearts you know our path you know our our misperceptions our misconceptions our our areas of pain unresolved pain our areas of unresolved hurt anything that would be in any way a hindrance to us walking freely with you down the path that you have for us. We invite you right now in the name of Jesus to speak to us. And we know your, your word, not just the information, but the supernatural process of you speaking to our hearts brings healing. And it also makes us free. You said that. So we ask you for it right now in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we start, let me just mention a couple ways in which there have been wrongs by the church that I've seen. And I'm just going to name 11 things that I kind of sat down and thought. And uh, quite frankly, we could probably extend this list significantly if we wanted to. So here's a couple things, things that the church have, has done wrong. And, and when I say this, when I say the church... Please understand, I'm not saying those bad people out there here in this church, you're going to find everything perfect. I'm not saying that. I'm saying because the church is made up of flawed human beings, including me, including you, these are things that have happened in church that have brought uh, pain and, and, and hurt to some people. One is uh, the church has at times motivated out of fear. It can be big things, it can be little things. It could be motivated out of threatening people with hell. And please don't get me wrong, we need to have accurate theology and those kinds of things, but motivating the gospel primarily through fear or even motivating service in the church through fear. Subtle manipulation. Well, if, if your priorities really are, if you're really lined up with God, wouldn't you want to rather do this? I mean, surely you would be willing to make this sacrifice. Motivating people out of fear. Need, compulsion. Secondly, would be imposed unbiblical requirements on followers. I had a conversation recent, not too long ago with, with some people that I know who were talking about how when they were growing up, they were not allowed to watch the Smurfs because, of course, there was Gargamel and he's a witch and that's just like, you know, patently evil and clearly it's going to overtake your life and you'll end up having a pitchfork and, and horns coming out of your head if you do that. So, I, I look, I, I don't mean to make fun. I mean, there may be people in this room who choose not to watch the Smurfs for, for that reason that, <laughs> or what have you. What I'm saying is imposing something that is not uh, clearly stated in the Scripture, imposing that unbiblical requirement on people. And abolitionist movement, am I saying it right? I always mix those up. I'm not talking about slavery. I'm talking about... Uh, no, not women's suffrage. Alcohol. Prohibition. Prohibition. Thank you. I keep on saying abolitionists. Prohibitionists. 
have created this thing where if I'm, if I'm straight up with you, the, the, though the scriptures don't, uh, don't exactly pro, prohibit the drinking of alcohol, they prohibit drunkenness, the church has made it about the prohibition of alcohol, period, and equated somebody who may take a sip of wine as being uh, demonically influenced or what have you. Unbiblical requirement. Now, if somebody feels in their heart that they shouldn't drink wine or if they have problems with alcoholism in their family or whatever, absolutely, but we can't impose that standard upon everybody. Thirdly would be making you feel judged rather than helped. Another one would be failing to allow you to be you. Another one, fifth, would be church leaders have used and exploited people to grow the ministry rather than developing the people of the ministry. Another one would be that we develop a subculture that creates a barrier for the very people that we're supposed to be reaching. In other words, they come in here and they hear the lingo and the jargon, they see the, the, the this and, the, and they don't relate to it and it doesn't... Or, or, or our social connections, they come into a social connection and there's so much church subculture stuff, they don't even know what's going on. And I can testify to this. I used to be that non-churched person who thought, who are these people? <laughs> you follow what I'm saying? We create a subculture that's so removed from ordinary culture that people who, that we need to reach actually feel disconnected. Seventh would be, I think, I've lost track. We... Church can sometimes make it about towing the line rather than following Jesus. Another one would be that we've created church that mirrors business or corporate America more so than family. That's serious. And let me tell you, as somebody who's lived in other cultures, other countries, American church, that is a serious issue here. We look like a business. We act like a business. We smell, we feel like a business. You know what the end of the day is? If it looks like a duck, it smells like a duck, it sounds like a duck, it is a duck. We've made it into a business with our marketing strategies when God wants to build a family. Sorry, I'm preaching already. We, thanks, buddy. We, church can sometimes can insist on conformity that's a big one. People not feeling that they look like and that they're supposed to be like the preacher guy or the deaconess person or whatever. They don't feel that's not who they are. And yet, if we're really spiritual, we become like them when actually God has made every single person unique and beautiful in their own expression. We've given no place to ask questions. What if we don't believe that the Bible is really the word of God? Can we talk about that? What if we're not really sure that Jesus is the only way? Can we talk about that? Et cetera, et cetera. Do we have a space to be able to have open forum dialogue and discussion? And then lastly, uh, the church has willingly received from me, i.e. my tithes, my service, but then in the moment that I need help, not there. These things collectively, and you can add yours to the list, have brought legitimate hurt and pain that sometimes goes unresolved, and that's what we want to speak into today. Some symptoms of being hurt by church in a way that is unresolved, uh, one would be that there's an aversion to church. And let me tell you something, there are people in this great city that we want to reach that have an aversion to church. I've met more in Detroit than I've met anywhere else in the world that I've, that I've been. You mention church and immediately racism, white imperialism, uh, uh, kind of foo-foo nothingness, you know, that when we should be doing something that actually helps people, we're just playing some religious game. These are the concepts of, that people have from church. Aversion to church, that would be one symptom um, related to that, secondarily, would be a negative attitude towards church. We think of church and it has a negative mm, thing inside of us. Third out of five quick things, an aversion to things associated with what we've known of as church. So sometimes it, we can have a bad experience with church and anything that we are associating in our heads with church, we, we begin to look at that negatively as well. 
And consequently, people have thrown out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak, if you're familiar with that concept. So even though they've had a bad experience, legitimate bad experience, they wind up wanting to run away from all the good stuff that was in that church. Fourthly would be a disconnectedness. This is perhaps the most important. Disconnectedness from intimacy with God. When it begins to affect this, our perception of, of God, because our view of God has been formed by church and it's become a, a dysfunctional and, and hurtful thing, so therefore we have a, a wrong image of God, which, which, which disconnects intimacy that way. And then finally, equating Christianity with what we do rather than who we follow. That's a big thing. It ultimately is all about who we follow. Every single son and daughter of God following Jesus. That is, that is the gospel. And all the stuff that we do stems out of our personal relationship with a God who wants us to know him and him to know us. And as his will is revealed, then we're able to walk in his will. And if we've learned church as this place where we ought to do the Christian thing, but it's actually somebody else's conviction, somebody else's idea of what that's supposed to look like, we are living somebody else's conviction and that will never bring life. And as long as we associate church with this lifeless thing of trying to be like somebody else who must have the Christian thing down, it's going to have a negative idea. And I want to say today that God wants to liberate us from anything that he himself hasn't revealed to you as his will. The, the way of the Lord is, is a freeing thing. And every single person is called to know God personally and follow him, follow Jesus. So let's, let's start with that. Doing church without a personal revelation of Jesus is, I believe, I submit... I don't want to oversimplify it, but I submit is at the root of much spiritual brokenness. I'm going to say that again. Doing church, doing church, doing this church thing, without it stemming from a personal revelation of who Jesus is, is at the root of much spiritual brokenness. So my own um, story, I'll just share briefly something that happened a few years ago for me. So I, I was... You know, I, I certainly don't suggest that I had everything down perfectly, um, but uh, a couple years ago, we, my, my family and I, we moved across the globe to Africa on mission for Jesus in response to what we believe he was leading us into. And um, during the course of that, as many of you would know, uh, the door opened up for us to lead the a church, an existing church called Santon City Church. And there we were, leading Santon City Church, 2000 and. 13, perhaps, let's say. It was, my, I think, our second year. So I was not, what I'm getting at is I was not in a place of uh, spiritual um, dryness or, or like weakness. You know, we all can be stronger and whatever. But it was in that context that I had something revolutionary happen in my spiritual journey with God. I didn't feel like I had been broken. I didn't feel like I needed to be healed or something or set free. Um, but yet God still revealed something in a deeper way that has changed my life. And it was essentially this. I was sitting at a, so I was away, we were away, about 40 people who were involved in leading church were away with Tyron Daniel, who leads the New Covenant Ministries International team that we partner with as a church. And um, we were hanging out. We were at a bonfire in the African bush, which alone is life-changing if you haven't ever experienced that. And uh, I'm sitting there with Brad Lane, who leads a, a church in kind of the northern Johannesburg area in Tyron. And we're just sitting there staring at the fire, as you do. And uh, we're just talking about Jesus. And we're talking about how, um, how we've made church about so many other things that are all good. But, but, you know, just making it again about primarily about him. And we're just talking about that. And nothing that Brad said or Tyron said did this as I'm sitting there I just have this it almost came to me this way uh, it was like the next thought that popped into my head to contribute into the conversation but as we were sitting there I just had this 
I don't even know how to explain it. It's like I saw the whole gospel boiling down to what Jesus did on the cross and the love of God that is expressed in that. The absolute, unending, immeasurable love of God that sent him to a cross, that being the foundation, the first part of the gospel. And, but then his resurrection and ascension. So in other words, what he did and what he, where, he, where, where he went and where he is today. The, it's like I saw those two things being the pillars of the entirety of the gospel. Now, I may have been able to preach a sermon on that prior to that point. Do you understand what I mean? Sometimes you, you know something that you already knew, but you know it on a whole other level. It's like that, that simple thought resonated so deeply, and from that came a journey of an understanding, whereas before I had well understood the authority of Jesus. Jesus ascended into heaven, having been given all authority and power, being made forever Lord and Christ, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords. I understood that. But this thing of Jesus on a cross, it was almost kind of like the wimpy part. Like some people need to know about how he was Savior and stuff like that, but really they need to know he's Lord and submit to his power and authority. And it's like, I didn't feel like I needed healing or anything, but in that moment I understood, no, 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 it is extremely important to understand what he did on that cross and why he did it and what that means about his thoughts towards me liberated me. I didn't even know I needed to be liberated. I felt passionate about Jesus. But somehow another dimension came into my reality that God loved me first. Before I've done anything, God loves me first and he took the first step so that I would be able to submit and, re- and receive his lordship and his authority, which is for my good. But he, but he knew that in order for me to receive that, he needed to first show through demonstrable action his unending love for me, which gave me another level of confidence that my performance does not shift and cannot shift his love towards me. That, 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 that changed things big time. That changed things to cause me to love other people in in another way because the more I saw and understood that about God's heart for me, the more I became changed to feel the same way about other people. So so you may be saying, what are you talking about? Doing church without personal revelation? I think that we've had a wrong portrayal in times past in some cases of really who Jesus is. And that Jesus did these amazing things, but now he kind of like needs you to do right. And now he kind of, you know, he died on the cross for you, so, you know, ante up. You need, to, you need to do right. You need to pay your tithes, you need to go to church. Church is incredibly boring, so surely that must be like a spiritual accomplishment. If you actually do that every week and, and you need to, you know, do, do some other thing, for, whatever the case may be, maybe you need to go to the nations and go to something. When in fact, Jesus wants this one thing, your heart. A surrendered heart that's following him. So, let me just talk about his, his what, what Jesus is, the true Jesus. We're talking about true revelation of, of really who he is and the effect of, of his leadership. Let's make it very clear, his leadership in our lives is good. Why am I saying that? Because I believe that a lot of the spiritual brokenness in this world can cause us to come to a place where we, maybe without even knowing it, begin to put a wall up between us and Jesus, and we do the church thing, but in our personal, where no one else is, it's just us and Jesus, we're not really wanting to follow him, we're not wanting to give him our heart, we're not wanting to really follow him and make it about that. And at the root of that is trust. That we have, we have begun to think about Jesus something other than who he really is. That he is, in fact, both seated at the right hand of God with all power and authority. And in, in, in essence, it's a fearful thing. And he's awesome and terrible and glorious and so far beyond us. But at the same time, he's Jesus that meek and humbly went to a cross for me to pay the penalty for my sin so that I could come to him. 
And he's both of these at the same time, and that his leadership actually is ultimately motivated from the same thing that sent him to a cross. He's good. Psalms 23. Ever heard of that scripture before, some of you? It's almost a scripture that none of us can argue with. I'm just going to read this over, and I'm going to ask you to not think of this as the kind of fairy tale thing that was written on the nursery wall or your children's church growing up, and it had a picture of a cartoon-looking God, Jesus, shepherd guy, and, and uh, I'm going to ask you to, to, to hear this afresh and anew about what God's leadership and Jesus' leadership is like in our lives. The Lord is my shepherd. Let's just take note. He is the Lord, the highest in authority, and he's a shepherd, somebody that's taking care of me, somebody that cares for me, and somebody who's leading. Right? The Lord is my shepherd. Can we accept that? I shall not want. In other words, the, the, the result of his leadership in my life is that I don't need anything. He takes care of me. In other words, if my heart is sincerely following the shepherd, that doesn't mean my performance in following the shepherd is perfect, but my heart today is sincerely seeking to follow him, I'm not going to have want. He will lead me into the provisions that I need. Why do I believe that? Because of this. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. In other words, he wants my life to reflect his name to other people who watch me as I follow him. Yes, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Let me ask you this. Does that mean that following Jesus is always going to be wonderful and comfortable? We've got valley of shadow of death. Uh, uh, yeah, that's it. We got valley. Of the, sometimes he leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, and yet his leadership is such that we don't need to fear because your rod and your staff, that, those articles that you use to lead me and to pull me out of trouble during those delicate and vulnerable moments. They bring us comfort. And not only that, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus, in other words, is merciful and he's good. And as we follow him, his attributes follow us. Goodness and mercy. That's the reality of his leadership in our lives. And so the crux of the matter today is Jesus' leadership, relating to him as he is, in his authority, knowing his, his intentions towards us. That is the key to healing. That's the atmosphere of healing of our hearts, where it relates to our relationship with him as well as his church. So how can I say this? It, relate, it gets down to a, our revelation of Jesus. If you'll look with me in Matthew chapter 16, you can, you can turn there. Uh, is it Matthew 13, actually? Matthew 13. Matthew 13, verse... Matthew 16, verse 13. And uh, I'm, not, I'm actually going to read it. I'm just going to talk about it. Jesus, when he was... Um, walking with his disciples. He says, he was going to Caesarea Philippi and he asked this question of his disciples, who do men, who do the people say that I am? I, the son of man, am. Anybody ever heard the scripture before? Who, who do people say that I am? In other words, he's asking them, what's the talk of the town? What's the, what's the rumor going around about, about, about my identity? And I want, I want to make clear, Jesus in this critical moment is getting to the question that needs to be answered for the people that he's building, these 12 disciples who will become apostles, the very thing that they're going to need to be able to fulfill their call of being members of those building his church. People fulfill, being a part of his church, extending his kingdom. This is the question that needs to be answered. It says, who do people say that I am? And they say, some say John the Baptist or Jeremiah or Elijah or one of the prophets. And then he turns it and says, who do you say I am? 
important. Starts with this question about the rumors around town, and then he makes it about them. Who do you say that I am? And as many of us would know in this room, the apostle Peter, Simon Peter stands up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Um, and, and Jesus replies to him and says, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood. In other words, no man has revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. I want you to take note of that. Critical thing going down in Jesus building the church in this moment. He wants to know who people believe him to be. What is your perception of me? And that it's not good enough for your perception to be based on what the talk of town is, but that it is your own perception and not that it's your idea that you have arrived at with your own intellectual ability, that ultimately it is something that can only be revealed to us by God himself, the Father. In other words, it transcends our intellect trying to reason our way. I think Jesus is this. It could be Buddha. It could be Muhammad. It could be Jesus. But I'm, by reason of process of elimination, I'm going to go with Jesus on this one. It's not that. It is, it is Jesus saying, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood. Man did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven, and I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. What is he saying? You are Peter upon this rock. What rock? The rock of the revelation that Jesus, that Peter had just had about Jesus. I'm wanting to say to us that any person who is being, who is a part of the church, in other words, who has put their faith in Jesus and has, by virtue of that decision, become part of the church and now has the calling of God to become someone who is helping to build the church, what God uses you to build his church will only come from your revelation of Jesus. It isn't just something that's reserved for the really spiritual Christians. It is every person's inheritance as a son and daughter of God to have the eyes of their heart opened to their own encounter, their own knowledge of the son of God. That is how Jesus builds his church. And when we're trying to build the church and do the good church thing and be good church people without having had that, we're just playing religious games with the best of intentions. It all, what I'm, what I'm saying is, I'm not trying to correct your, you're trying to do, I'm not, this is not a correction. This is a identification of what the ultimate pursuit is. Ultimately, the whole thing boils down to a God who loves us endlessly and the pursuit is to know him and to be known by him and ultimately to make him known. That's it. To know him. I've got a friend in the back row, Jason Faraday. He, sorry, I'm going to pick on you randomly. I've got a friend, Jason, over there and he is living in Detroit, as most people here would know, JJ's house and doing work uh, to benefit people in the east side of Detroit and, and these kinds of things. But he's not just doing that from my relationship with him. I think, I think I can say this confidently. He's not just doing that because that's a good Christian thing to do. I would say it this way. Jesus revealed himself to Jason as the God who said, I want you to move to Detroit and I want you to start something in the basement of this house and I'm going to provide every step of the way for you but start something in the basement of this house that's going to benefit um, certain people who need help and could use your assistance. I will use you. That's, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the merciful God. And I could take somebody else, maybe Kurt. Uh, he's not just doing certain things in the church. Kurt would be, would be able to say that God or Jesus is the God who revealed this to me. And from that, that's why I do this This is and this is my life. Do you understand what I'm saying? Every person is called to reveal a unique part of the person of Jesus to the world. And the ultimate pursuit isn't doing that, it's knowing him, out of which we become who we are. Why do I say that? Because if you look at that scripture, when Peter confessed who Jesus was, Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven and then he revealed to Peter who he was. Do you follow what I'm saying? 
In other words, as we see Jesus, the immediate result is that we become what we see. And the Jesus that you know, all of us need to see common attributes of who Jesus is, but there's a unique expression that you are called that comes and stems from your own personal relationship with him. And it's in seeing that Jesus that you then have the faith and the divine energy from heaven working inside of you to live what you have seen. If you don't believe me, can you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3? I'm, I'm a little all over the show right now because this is not the order of my notes, but we're going to go with it anyway. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the very scripture from which comes this, this verse that we've referenced often that's, it, that's underneath the spirit of Detroit statue. Remember that statue? That's down there on the corner of Woodward and Jefferson in downtown Detroit. And it's got the thing about this, the spirit of Detroit, a man holding up family, and then uh, kind of an orb or sun that represents God on the other hand. Remember that? And it uh, says that the God is, is, uh, is manifested through the spirit of man in family, the noblest of human relationships. But underneath that is the inscription of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now, in that same passage of Scripture, let's, let's look at that. Because I just told you that it's as we see Jesus that we become the unique thing that, that God has called us to be. Look with me in um, verse 12 of that same chapter, if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. So already, half of you are probably wondering what the heck is he even talking about because this is weird Bible language. Let me, just, let me just say very, very plainly, most of us know that Moses went up into a mountain where he encountered God, right? And he came down with two tablets of stone on, on which were written the, the Ten Commandments. And Moses, when he had encountered God face to face, as a man does a friend, he shone so brightly with the glory of the Lord that he had encountered that he had to wear a veil over his face because it was blinding the people who were looking at him. Now, how's that for reflecting something of what we've, what we've seen? Yeah. That's all a picture of, of, of what God is actually intending. Where It's a picture of Moses going up into the mountain to encounter him face to face, whereas the children of Israel staying down below, being too afraid and ultimately not trusting the nature of this terrible and great God. What is he going to do if we get too close? Whereas the ultimate desire of God is to be close with us that we could encounter his glory and then shine something of that glory aside. Now, let's continue reading because I am getting to a point. Uh, he put a, a veil over his face that the children of Israel could not steadily look steadily at the end of what was passing away. What is he even talking about? That's Jesus. That in the 12 commandments, the law that was a type and a shadow of a new law that would be written through Jesus. Don't want to confuse us. But um, let's look at the next verse. But their minds were blinded for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. So we're talking about veils being lifted so that we can see something that previously had been veiled. And in this case, we're talking about the person of Jesus, that we can sit in church, we can hear other people's understanding of Jesus, but it's not until that Jesus becomes my revelation the Jesus I have come to know, that is when I can participate in his calling and purpose for me. So you're still, I'm still building the case for how we're, trans, we're transformed as we see him. But even to this day when Moses read, a veil lies on their heart. Can I ask you to take note of that? Where is the veil? It's on the heart. We've made this thing of Christianity about what we do. And I'm not saying it's not important. Faith without works is dead, the Bible says. What we do is important, but it has to stem from faith, not from obligation and duty. And faith is always an issue of the heart. Relationship, whether it's with people or with him, is always an issue of the heart. 
That's why Romans chapter 10 says, if you believe with your heart, faith is of the heart, you will be saved. Yeah. Even, uh, nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, in other words, when the heart turns to the Lord, simple recipe for how we can actually create the environment in which we see Jesus more and more. When the heart turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now check this out. But we all with unveiled face, in other words, that veil being lifted because our heart is turned towards the Lord, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. What is he saying there? Very simply, very simple. It is an issue of the heart. And when somebody realizes the love of God, that is the love of Jesus, their heart can turn towards that Jesus. And when a heart turns towards Jesus to receive him as who he really is, not just an option, not just a great prophet or a great teacher, the son of the living God, the Christ, the Messiah, the one with all power and authority. When the heart turns to the Lord to receive him as who he really is, it opens the way for the veil to be lifted for us to see him as he is. And as we see him as he is in our heart, we become, we become transformed into that same image. That's church. It's sons and daughters of God who are pursuing knowing him intimately. Not pursuing being the great performing church person, ticking all the boxes, pursuing knowing him out of which we see his will and we follow what he's, what he's doing. So let me just say from my own personal example, my own personal experience, because, you know, I didn't grow up in church. And uh, I think that a lot of people who have had some bad experiences, they did grow up in church. And um, I, for, for, for me, I'm not saying, you know, I'm just, I'm just saying what happened in, in, in my experience. Um, that it, it, the whole, be- I, I didn't grow, I didn't know all the stuff, if you know what I'm saying. I didn't know all the, the, what you're supposed to do as a good church person and all that. I didn't know the culture, the, I didn't know any, I didn't, I didn't know about being born again, about getting saved, about you know, all this stuff that we toss around in church. I didn't know. In fact, if you mentioned the word born again in the context where I grew up, that was those flaky, weird evangelical people. Like, stay away from them. Like, they come knocking on your door and they ask you if you know where you're going to go if you die tonight. And it's like, just, you know, weirdo, flake. That was, that's kind of like my orientation. And then when I was uh, in a senior in high school, and I know I've told this story often, I don't want to go into the, the details, a Catholic priest, I was... Uh, Roman Catholic and going to a Catholic school, Catholic priest shared the concept of knowing God personally and compared knowing him, is it like knowing Abraham Lincoln or your best friend? And, uh, and my heart was turned to, the, to this Catholic priest. I, I knew that he had something that I wanted in my life and I didn't know what it was, but I knew I wanted it. And he's asking us about knowing God. And I realized in that moment, without a doubt, my knowledge of Jesus is far more like Abraham Lincoln, a historical figure than it is a best friend, and that revolutionized my whole, like that, it's like the whole eternity came into connectivity in that moment where I realized what could possibly be more important if God really exists than to know him personally. And now Jesus on a cross suddenly makes sense to me. Like I get that, he paid a penalty so that I could know him. And uh, he, I, the, no one preached the gospel to me, no one said You're, the Romans road, for some of you who know what that is, the Romans road to salvation didn't talk about repenting and receiving none of that Catholic priest just said Jesus says seek and you will find and if you want to have that relationship if you seek it he guarantees you'll find it made sense to me went to bed that night and uh, prayed to Jesus recognized Jesus I don't feel like I actually know you and in that moment it was the was the first it was actually the second time in my life that I had the sense of God's presence, if, if you understand what I mean, the, the sense of his nearness in that moment. And as I was praying, I said, God, I don't feel like I know you. You said, seek and you will find. And so I just want you to know I'm seeking, help me find you. And in that moment, 
the pursuit of knowing him, I understood, I don't even know how or where, how to receive him, that I had to repent and I had to receive him, declare, recognize that he's my Lord, put my life in his hands. Don't even know how, how it happened. But this Catholic boy got born again that night. And I didn't even know what that meant for six months later. I didn't know anybody in my life for 12 months later who, who, claimed, who understood what I was talking about. I, I, I didn't do anything. It's not like I'm some spiritual guy. I just stumbled my way into this thing. Jesus did it. But, but my point is, my whole orientation, I didn't buy into church, is what I'm saying. I didn't say, Jesus, I want to be a good church boy for the rest of I want to do the church, the, the whatever. I, my orientation was, I want to know you. And, um, and I think that that is actually a profound thing. That our pursuit is not building some concept of what we think church, our pursuit, our number one priority for every person in this room is that Jesus gave it all to have you so that you could pursue knowing him. And out of knowing him comes divine life. If you look at the experience that the apostle Paul had, and I just want to wrap it up with that. Galatians chapter one, incredible. Uh, Paul, I think, had a very similar experience. If, if, you, if you kind of know, there were the 12 who followed Jesus around personally, the 12 apostles uh, together with other disciples. But then Paul's this guy that's kind of like of another... He, he didn't even know Jesus face-to-face. He never even saw Jesus face-to-face. In fact, he never saw Jesus until Jesus was, had long resurrected and ascended, and he was the historical Paul, not some fairy tale, the historical person that historians would all agree this guy existed, was a persecutor of the church, on route to a city called Damascus to persecute the church. This was a historical fact. He was known publicly as a persecutor of the church. And many historians, I studied history in college, met, this is like what messes them up. What happened to this guy? He was a persecutor of the church, and somehow we know he ended his life giving everything for the spreading of the very thing that he persecuted. What happened to this guy? The 12, maybe they were like influenced by this cult leader, Jesus. Maybe, you know, we understand what, why they continued in the religious flake, flakiness and, and, and preaching this thing of the gospel. What happened to Paul? He wasn't even hanging out with these guys. He was persecuting him, and somehow, en route to Damascus, something happened to him that completely changed the whole course of his life, and he gave his life ultimately for this gospel. Are you following me? And here, the same Paul describes something of his experience in Galatians 1, verse 11. He says, I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which was preached by me, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. Remember that? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven, Jesus says. Paul's saying the same thing. This gospel is not, is not of man. In the same way, my experience. No one even shared the gospel with me, except the Holy Spirit did on my bed. That's, all, that's how I know the gospel. <laughs> For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Am I saying that teaching and things like that, preaching doesn't have any value? Absolutely not. What I'm saying is it can't be faith of another person. At the end of the day, it is your own revelation that builds the church through you. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me. That's the whole concept. That I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem, but to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. In other words, this whole thing for Paul was not about adopting what other people know about Jesus, even though that's important. 
there, it's not that there's not value. At the end of the day, it has to stand. Your call, your place with God is just that, your place with God. So I just want to uh, ask us, because this seriously begs the question, what do we do now? You may be sitting here thinking, okay, that's great, wonderful, so other people have these incredible divine experiences, and I don't. And uh, I just want to say, first of all, let's, let's not super spiritualize this stuff. When I had that encounter around the campfire, it felt like a, a thought that would be the next thought that I would say when, the, when Brad's done saying his thing, I'll say this thought. That's what it felt like. In other words, it doesn't always happen to be like the parting of the clouds and Gabriel comes through and says, this is the revelation of the Lord Jesus. Sometimes it's like, it feels like your own thought, but it comes with a sense of, of peace and truth and, and clarity and confidence. What can we do? And, 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 and when I say that, I want to make sure it's clear. Jesus has already done He's already made the way. He opened the way up. And so I just want to give a, a moment right now for us to do the thing that St. Paul that we're talking about, do the thing that he suggests that we do. He says that the veil lies over our heart. And even if we've received Jesus, there very well could still be a veil over our heart, me included. The veil lies over our heart. And it says when the, when, when the heart turns to the Lord, the veil is, is removed. So could I ask us maybe, um, you don't have to stand, but I'm just going to ask you to do whatever you can stand, but I'm just going to ask you to do whatever it is just to create that space where you tune other things out and turn your heart to the Lord. And as we do that, I want to define exactly what that means. Turn the heart to the Lord. Because I remember talking about this back in Johannesburg and there was a young college-age lady who said, I, what does that even mean? How do you, what does that mean? Turn the heart to the Lord. It says, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. If you feel comfortable, you don't have to do this, but I would just ask you to, to maybe close your eyes just in, in the process of tuning other things out and facilitating something of a, of a Jesus that paid everything for you so that you, he could be revealed to you, so that you could actually know him. It says, turn to the Lord. Two words there, turn and Lord. What does it mean to turn the heart to the Lord? Well, first of all, let's realize... It's the Lord. He's not just teacher. He's not even just prophet. He's not just a great man. He's not a giver of ethics and morals. He's the Lord. So when we turn to the Lord, we're recognizing the answer to the question that he asks all of us. Who do you say I am? The Lord is my shepherd. He wants to be your shepherd, but the only way he can be your shepherd is when you declare him to be your shepherd. And if you have faith to do that, if you believe Jesus is Lord, Savior and Lord, just invite you to declare that to him. But I also want to say, as we said earlier, that the veil lies on our heart. And he knows your heart. He knows my heart. There's no sense in trying to do all this spiritual mumbo-jumbo if it's not real to us. If you don't believe that he's real, if you aren't convinced that he's real, it may seem silly for me to say this, but tell him that. Acknowledge what your heart really is. If you've been hurt in times past by church or other spiritual things, let him know. The beginning of my relationship with God began in the moment that I recognized and told him, Lord, I don't feel like I know you. 
It felt like 17 years of him waiting for me to finally get that. Just go ahead and tell him now your real heart. And if you have faith for it, if you have that conviction, if you don't, please don't feel condemned. But if you do, then let's declare him to be Lord and turn to the Lord. What is turn? It simply means it's kind of like if you've been in the same room with somebody and you haven't really acknowledged one another, that moment where you meet eyes and lock eyes and you're facing each other and you're not hiding and you're, you're, you're making yourself available to that person and you're recognizing them. Just invite you to do that right now. Turn to him. When I gave my life to Jesus, I didn't know what I was, what he was going to require of me. I didn't know. And in this moment, I encourage you, don't make it about I give this or that or he ultimately wants your heart and then from your pursuit of knowing him, then you discover his will. He'll reveal his will. He'll reveal himself as you pursue him. So Lord, you said that as the heart turns to the Lord, the veil is lifted and and Father, we turn our heart to you. We turn our heart to you, Jesus. We declare you are Lord. You are our shepherd. You're good. We want to know you. We want to pursue you. We thank you that you first pursued us. And we trust, we trust you. And Lord, we are asking, lift the veil. Let us see you as you really are. Let us encounter you as you really are. Let every person in this room see you and become who you have called them to be in him, in yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.